Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. Get the unmissable news stories of the day. This is the Beijing Hour. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Friday, September the 8th, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, the Chinese president's touring parts of northeast China, recently ravaged by heavy rains and floods. Chinese Premier is on an official visit to Indonesia following his participation in the 18th ASEAN Summit in Jakarta. A former White House trade advisor of the Trump administration has been found guilty of contempt of Congress. In business, China's trade with the emerging markets continues to grow. In sports, the women's final at the U.S. Open is all set for this weekend. In culture and entertainment, the 6th Silk Road International Cultural Expo. Now checking the day's top stories. The Chinese president's been visiting flood-ravaged areas in Heilongjiang province. Xi Jinping inspected recovery efforts and assessed crop damage from recent weeks of heavy rain that have hit the northeast. On Thursday, the president went to a village in the city of Shangzhou where he surveyed the impacts of the floods on rice fields. President Xi encouraged local villagers and expressed hope they'll soon be able to resume normal lives and work. I am concerned about the flood-stricken areas. In China, when people meet difficulties, we need to give full play to the advantages of socialism. When trouble occurs in one location, help comes from all quarters. I hope the relief and reconstruction work can go well. The Chinese leader also inspected work on the restoration of damaged houses and infrastructure. Heavy rain continues to lash Hong Kong and Guangdong province three days after Typhoon Haikui made landfall in southern China. Media reports say the storms injured at least 110 people in Hong Kong as the city recorded the highest rainfall in 140 years, forcing the closure of schools and several subway stations. In neighboring Guangdong, authorities upgraded the flood control emergency response to the second highest level. The city of Shenzhen also saw record rainfall of 469 millimeters, and that's the highest since 1952. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro will start an official visit to China on Friday. The Chinese Foreign Ministry says the visit uh, the visits at the invitation of Chinese President Xi Jinping. With the gradual improvement of Venezuela's economic situation, more and more Venezuelan refugees who had migrated to other Latin American countries in the past years are returning to their home country to reunite with their families. However, unilateral sanctions imposed by the United States on Venezuela are causing troubles. Lei Xiangping has more. Early on September the 1st, a passenger plane carrying more than 160 Venezuelan refugees landed at the international airport of Caracas. It was a flight from Lima, the capital of Peru, and was operated by the Venezuelan state-owned airline Combianza. Among the passengers, some had not set foot on their homeland for over six years. They were very excited to come back home. Returning to my country makes me feel free, happy, and excited. And it's really beyond words. I stayed in Peru for a year and returned to my country for many reasons. The first is that I'm very sick and every now and then feel so painful that I can't stand up. Secondly, it's hard to find a job in Peru. You're often hungry and you have to pay rent. What really made me come back was that my girls need to meet their families, and our country also needs us badly. The reason this refugee could return safely is due to the return to the motherland plan proposed by the Venezuela government in 2018, which allows Venezuela refugees living in other countries to return by applying for free flight services. Since 2017, due to the escalation of unilateral sanctions by the United States and other reasons, Venezuela's national economy has suffered serious setbacks and many Venezuelans migrated to other Latin American countries to make a living. But many refugees do not end up living better lives in other countries. 
and fall victims to social discrimination easily. With the gradual recovery of Venezuela's social economy since 2021, more and more Venezuelan people have returned to their homeland through the Return to the Motherland plan. According to statistics, as of early this month, more than 340,000 Venezuelans refugees have returned to the country through this plan. But the United States still retains its sanctions against Venezuela. Causing these refugees some practical difficulties in the process of their returns, Venezuelan Vice Foreign Minister Randall Pena says, "Arranging flights for refugees is very difficult." Venezuelan airlines are blocked by the notorious U.S. unilateral sanctions, so arranging flights to fly Venezuelans from other countries back to their country is very difficult, almost impossible. Our planes can't refuel in Peru, so we had to send a plane to pick people up without refueling. The Venezuelan government stated that the return to the motherland plan is a measure to help those Venezuelan citizens who have emigrated overseas due to unilateral and illegal sanctions by the United States. The Venezuelan government has blamed the sanctions as the main contributor of the diaspora problems the country is facing. Julio Chavez, deputy of the National Assembly of Venezuela, says before the sanctions, the country was a leader in Latin America in many indicators of the UN Human Development Index. Why Venezuelans were fleeing the country after 2015? Because the former U.S. President Barack Obama imposed sanctions on Venezuela. Venezuela is currently facing more than 900 sanctions. The negative impact of U.S. sanctions is clear, and no doubt it's also an important reason for the exacerbation of the Venezuelan refugee crisis. 58 Venezuelan aircrafts, including 57 state-owned ones, are on the sanction list. Other sanction measures against the civil aviation sector in Venezuela include the prohibition of flying over Venezuelan airspace at certain altitudes, which has affected aircrafts and pilots certified by the United States. These sanctions will remain as obstacles for the Venezuelan government to bring more refugees back home. For the Beijing Hour, this is Li Xiangping in Caracas, Venezuela. Foreign Minister Wang Yi says China stands ready to develop its bilateral ties with Venezuela. He made the remarks on Thursday in his meeting with Venezuelan Vice President Delcy Rodriguez at the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. And Xiao Bing has more. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has met with Venezuelan Vice President Delcy Rodriguez at the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. During the meeting, Wang says he hopes the visit will help broaden cooperation between the two countries. I appreciate that you have long been very concerned about supporting the development of China-Venezuela relations. I believe your visit to China will help open up broader prospects for bilateral ties. Wang Yi says China is willing to work with Venezuela to prepare for the next stage of high-level exchanges and promote bilateral cooperation. Which will not only benefit the two peoples, but also make new contributions to world peace and stability. The Venezuelan vice president says her country appreciates China's efforts in tackling global challenges and strengthening bilateral ties. In recent years, the world has experienced a pandemic, and now it's facing more challenges. China and Venezuela have supported each other, demonstrating brotherly friendship. The Venezuelan side firmly believes that the bilateral ties will embrace an even brighter future. Meanwhile, Wang Yi added that under the current circumstances, developing countries should strengthen solidarity and cooperation to safeguard common interests. China will continue to stand with other developing countries as their reliable partner. That was Cao Bing on Wang Yi's meeting with the Venezuelan vice president in Beijing. Well, meantime, Wang Yi has called,、uh, called for enhanced cooperation to ensure the steady and long-term development of the China-Australia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. In a meeting with the high-level Australian delegation on Thursday, Wang said that China is ready to enhance mutual understanding and work out differences in bilateral ties. Also at the meeting,、uh, former Foreign Minister Li Chaoxing urged both sides to build on the good momentum and cherish the mutually beneficial relationship. Sun Yat has more. 
The seventh meeting of the China-Australia high-level dialogue was held in Beijing on Thursday, three years since the last time it met. The talks come as bilateral relations in the areas of diplomacy, defense, education, and other areas have warmed and improved, reflecting what's been described as good momentum, which China's former foreign affairs minister says both sides should treasure and nurture. We should treasure the mutually beneficial relations that we have now. The essence of China-Australia relations is mutual benefits and win-win cooperation. Treating China as a threat is a strategic misjudgment. China's development goal is natural rejuvenation and to do a good job at its own affairs, not to surpass or replace anyone. China's development needs a peaceful environment, and China's development will also contribute to the peace and stability of the world. We have never threatened Australia in the past and will not do so in the future. This kind of mutually beneficial relationship is worth cherishing. Li says a healthy, robust relationship is in the interest of both nations and their people. He also invited attending delegates from the political, commercial, academic and cultural sectors to pool their wisdom to maintain that good momentum. Chinese experts say with the attendees, including former ministers from both Labour and Liberal parties in Australia, the Australian delegation reflects the country's bipartisan efforts to promote trade and economic ties with China, as well as people-to-people exchanges. That was Sunya in Beijing. Coming up, the Chinese Premier's official visit to Indonesia. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in. Twelve minutes past the hour. Chinese Premier Li Chung's on an official visit to Indonesia. This follows his arrival on Tuesday for talks with leaders of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and its dialogue partners. Zhao Yunfei has more in Jakarta. Over the past four days, the major one of the major topics he has delivered is a message of keeping the difference in check, while at the same time seeking for common ground. And Premier Li has attended uh, several meetings at the ASEAN summit. He attended the China ASEAN summit. He attended the ASEAN Plus Three summit and the East Asia summit. One of the key messages that he has delivered is to prevent uh, what he called a new Cold War. And uh, he said, I quote, "What is essential now." is to oppose picking sides. Now, currently at the uh, ASEAN summit, uh, relevant uh, members are talking uh, repeatedly about the South China Sea. And then at this moment, what we know so far is that a guideline uh, document of working towards the conclusion of the code of conduct is actually, in fact, has already adopted in July prior to this uh, ASEAN summit. And it really comes weeks after the ASEAN uh, first ever uh, joint military drill that would happen in September. But Indonesia announced it to change the location of the military drill away from the South China Sea. So basically, this is an act of based on the mutual trust. With the mutual trust, there is mutual uh, benefit. Now, if you take a look at the figures, China, ASEAN, uh, the trade between the two sides have reached 970 billion U.S. dollars last year, and this more than a double compared with 10 years ago. One of the flagship um, project, which is the high-speed railway between uh, Jakarta and Bandung, uh, Premier Li has also taken this opportunity to inspect on this train uh, in Jakarta, and uh, it's also uh, considered one of the key cooperation projects under the Belt and Road uh, framework. That was Zhao Yunfei on the Chinese Premier's visit to Indonesia. Uh, Li Cheng's taken part in the 18th East Asia Summit in Jakarta. He stressed the importance of the summit in addressing new challenges and urged it to play a greater role in development, strategic dialogue, and ASEAN leadership. Li expressed China's commitment to deeper cooperation on global initiatives proposed by President Xi Jinping. He also highlighted progress in the South China Sea's conduct negotiations, calling upon all nations to take a responsible stance by protecting the marine ecosystem. 
The Chinese foreign minister has recently, uh, or ministry rather, has recently announced that China will host the third Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation in Beijing in October. The ministry says the forum is not only the highlight in commemorative events to mark the BRI's 10th anniversary, but also an important platform for all partners to plan high-quality Belt and Road cooperation. During an interview with CGTN Radio, reporter Joe Fung, Pakistani ambassador to China, Moin al Haq said the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor under the BRI has been a transformative project over the past decade. Hawk calls the CPEC a corridor of hope and opportunities, saying that it significantly contributed to the country's socioeconomic development and improved people's lives. He expressed confidence that the two sides are committed to further building the CPEC into an exemplary project of high-quality Belt and Road cooperation, focusing on industrialization, agriculture, and digital technologies. Ambassador, thank you for taking my interview. We know this year marks the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, Pakistan, as I understand, was among the earliest countries to support and participate in this initiative. So what changes has the initiative brought to your country in the past 10 years? This visionary project, I think, has been uh, very beneficial for all the partner countries. It is about peace. It is about economic prosperity. It is about employment. It has contributed to the economic prosperity of the partner countries. But I think it has also brought people together, people-to-people -people exchanges, cultural exchanges. The CPEC or the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is an important pioneering project of the Belt and Road Initiative. Well, like the BRI, it also celebrates its 10th anniversary this year. How would you evaluate the significance of this project and the achievements in the past decade? Yes, true. Uh, CPAC is, uh, as we call in Pakistan, it has been a game changer, a transformative project. When it was launched, it was envisaged as a $60 billion project. We are very happy that China uh, and Pakistan's strategic partnership uh, has now focused on the economic partnership, which has become the main stay of our bilateral agenda. In terms of energy projects which were launched in Pakistan, from, from hydro to, to solar to wind, they, they brought new energy to, to our grid and helped not only the consumers, the common man, but also in terms of an industry. And then, of course, uh, jobs were created, new jobs were created, and. Uh, the underdeveloped areas were, were developed, uh, they were connected with mainstream uh, parts of Pakistan. So overall, I think this China-Pakistan Economic Corridor has been a great success in bringing too many dividends, economic dividends and prosperity to Pakistan, to our, both countries, of course. We know Gwada Port, located in southwestern Pakistan, is an important component of the whole CPEC. Uh, could you tell us something about the current situation of this port and how has the development of this port benefited your country and the region? Yes, uh, Gwadar is a uh, port has been termed as the crown jewel of China-Pakistan economic corridor. So today the port is functional and the trade is happening uh, not only for China and Pakistan but also for the region and we are also recently had a transshipment trade for, for Afghanistan also. And now we have developed a free trade zone in the in the in the in Gwadar port, which is now uh, under uh, uh, in process. But already, I think about 40 Chinese companies and local companies from Pakistan have established their their businesses there. And very soon, in a, in a, in few months, uh, a new brand new Gwadar International Airport will be launched. Will be completed. A hospital has been built. A school and vocational training uh, center has been built. It is also not important for our two countries, but it is also going to give a very easy, fast, affordable access to these landlocked countries of Central Asia also to have this very important port for their own trade. That was Pakistani Ambassador to China Moin al Haq talking about bilateral cooperation under the Belt and Road Initiative. India is getting ready for the Group of 20 summit on Saturday and Sunday in New Delhi. The Indian capital is stepping up security with over 100,000 personnel and making last-minute preparations as leaders arrive. Ravinder Bawa has more on what to expect from the meeting. 
Well, it's one big mega event which has been India has been preparing for almost a year now after becoming the president of this G20 for this year. India will be passing on the presidency to Brazil after the summit on Sunday, but till then, of course, it's a very big important event as far as India is concerned. Now, what we are expecting out of this event is something which we have seen through the year throughout the year there have been uh, you know ministerial meetings which have happened on various issues and what is the common thread between all of this is that we have not seen a joint communique or a joint statement out of any of these ministerial meetings so that puts a question mark whether on sunday will there be a joint communique a joint statement by the leaders of the g20 group that is a question mark and uh, it from the looks of it it seems that it might not be the case so then what is the takeaway or what is the achievement of india as the yeah, as India holds the presidency, it's going to be an important thing. And what we have seen in the last one year, that from July, there has been a push by India for the African Union to become a member. And the positive uh, part of it is that it looks like that there is a consensus among, among the members that, yes, African Union should be given the membership. And that is something which might be the outcome of this on Sunday, but yet, you know, the formalities might take another year for the African Union to be actually included as a member. But yes, there is a consensus on that. As far as the joint communique is concerned, the members are not in consensus because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And it will be for the first time in the history of G20 if there is no joint communique at the end of the meeting of the leaders on Sunday. But surely, one achievement could be that African Union becomes a member. So those are the things that are expected on Sunday when all these leaders meet. Delhi is all set to receive the leaders and it indeed is a big event as far as India is concerned. And that was Ravinder Bawa reporting in New Delhi ahead of the G20 summit. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up, a former Trump official has been found guilty of contempt of Congress. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. 22 minutes past the hour now. Uh, a, a former White House trade advisor under the Trump administration has been found guilty of contempt of Congress. Peter Navarro has been convicted on two misdemeanor counts of contempt of Congress, and each count carries a potential prison sentence of up to one year. Uh, the ruling cited his refusal to cooperate with the congressional investigation into the Capitol riot in 2021. Navarro says he'll appear, uh, appeal the verdict, arguing that he couldn't cooperate due to Trump's executive privilege claims. There are many other issues that are related to this case that are open questions. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the day that Judge Maida ruled that I could not use executive privilege as a defense in this case, the die was cast. This was pro forma, pro forma. We knew going in what the verdict was going to be. That's why this is going to the appeals court. U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta found Navarro's evidence insufficient to show that Trump had invoked executive privilege. Navarro's sentencing scheduled for January 12th, adding another chapter to the ongoing legal scrutiny related to the January the 6th Capitol attack. U.S. democracy is in a fragile state and is in disarray over deep divisions. That's the warning from 13 U.S. presidential libraries, representing leaders from Herbert Hoover during the Great Depression to Barack Obama. In a first-ever joint statement, it noted that Americans have a strong interest in supporting democratic movements and human rights around the world. And that's because free societies elsewhere contribute to U.S. security and prosperity. But they warned that such an interest is undermined when others see the U.S.'s own house in disarray. The statement added that civility and respect in political discourse are essential. Professor Joseph Mahoney at East China Normal University in Shanghai shares his insights. While this statement is a first from these organizations in particular, we've heard similar warnings previously from former officials, scholars, 
and concerned citizens. Uh, in fact, everyone knows that the U.S. is suffering a breakdown in political civility. This is nothing new. Uh, they know that democracy has been diminished, but I'm not sure that most people are really committed to democracy in practice anymore. You know, I've interviewed Trump supporters who voted for him in the last uh, election because they hoped he would break the system, and even some who hoped this might lead uh, to a military government or something like that. Now, that's on the right wing, of course, but progressives and some on the left also seek their own brand of authoritarianism, cancel politics, and so on. But both sides uh, believe uh, they are fighting an existential war of survival over gender equality and sexuality, abortion rights, welfare, affirmative action, taxation, gun rights, climate change, the American way of life, whatever you want to call it. You know, at the same time, there's this apocalyptic fear that the best days of the U.S. are behind it, that, that some sort of collapse on the world stage is imminent. So the ideal of democracy, however sacrosanct, uh, has eroded amidst this fear and anxiety and deepening culture war. Now, I don't think most Americans are actually opposed to democracy, but a, a significant number believe they're being threatened by the undemocratic practices of their political adversaries and believe they need to fight fire with fire in return. You know, there's, there's an awareness that as the U.S. itself has become a less free society, a less stable and reliable democracy, that this has uh, diminished the perception of democracy overseas in many countries. Of course, this has long been a problem, uh, uh, you know, having access to, to democratic rights and institutions. It's long been a problem for minorities and the poor in the United States, but it's been a growing number or a growing problem for everyone, uh, some would argue, uh, given the changes that accelerated uh, in the U.S., uh, uh, according to some estimates, as the business model became dominant in uh, American universities or as the U.S. imposed new laws and restrictions in the wake of 9-11. You know, that said, we see anti-democratic movements expanding in Central and Eastern Europe. We see them expanding in Central, East, South, and Southeast Asia. We see them accelerating in Africa and even by some accounts erosion in Latin America. Uh, we see growing doubts in some quarters, uh, even uh, in Western Europe, over the value and fate of democracy. So what these American groups are suggesting collectively is that democracy in the U.S. is at risk, and given this risk, democracy is at risk worldwide, insomuch as many countries look to the U.S. for guidance and support, or at least find common cause with the U.S., given political systems that heretofore have had much in common. As the center weakens, in other words, the periphery weakens, which in turn further weakens the center and so on. And that was Professor Joseph Mahoney at East China Normal University in Shanghai commenting on the current state of U.S. democracy. Well, today marks one month since a deadly wildfire devastated the Hawaiian island of Maui, leaving 115 people dead and hundreds missing. On August 8th, a wildfire fueled by hurricane winds and dry conditions swept through the resort town of Lahaina. Many survivors were forced to jump into the ocean to escape the flames, saying they had little warning. This ocean almost swept my kids away a few times, but yeah, we, we um, stuck together, we, we held on. We're not going to die this way, no. And we're here, we're alive. The entire property is gone. And that property housed a lot of our family. My, my mom's sister and my... The tragedy spurred a re-evaluation of the island's emergency alert systems. The wildfire is the deadliest in the U.S. since a 1918 forest fire claimed over 450 lives in Minnesota and Wisconsin. At 28 past the hour, Beijing thunder showers overnight, 23 degrees. Tom uh, tomorrow it's getting moderate rainfall in 26. Chongqing is 28 this evening, then sunny in 37. Lhasa has showers in 10 overnight, then the rain continues through the day tomorrow with a high of 21. Uh, Shenzhen downpours uh, through the day tomorrow with a high of 29 degrees Celsius. Hong Kong's getting heavy rainfall in 26 this evening, moderate rainfall in 29 on Saturday. Uh, elsewhere, Tokyo, 23 overnight, partly cloudy in 32 tomorrow. Islamabad's 24 overnight and uh, sunny in 42 tomorrow. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, the Chinese presidents touring parts of northeast China recently ravaged by heavy rains and floods. And the Chinese premier is on an official visit to Indonesia following his participation in the 18th ASEAN summit in Jakarta. And Shane Begum with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. Experience the musical classics of the East. 
mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. German Railway Company Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. I love you. 我爱你 This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you're a rookie, 你好，我的中文一点点。Or a sophisticated learner, 我来北京五年了，我是本地人。There is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好。Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour. One hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host, Shane Bigham, with you on this Friday. Still to come. In business, China's trade with emerging markets continues to grow. In sports, the women's final at the U.S. Open is all set for this weekend. In culture and entertainment, the Six Silk Road International Cultural Expo. To contact us, you can email audionewsroom@cgtn.com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter, at CGTN Radio.、Uh, first of all, checking the day's headlines. Here's Ju Tianlu. Thank you, Shane. The Chinese president has been visiting flood-ravaged areas in Heilongjiang Province. Xi Jinping inspected recovery efforts and assessed crop damage from recent weeks of heavy rain that hit the northeast. On Thursday, the president went to a village in the city of Shangzhi where he surveyed the impacts of the floods on rice fields. President Xi encouraged local villagers and expressed hope they will soon be able to resume normal lives and work. I am concerned about the flood-stricken areas. In China, when people meet difficulties, we need to give full play to the advantages of socialism. When trouble occurs in one location, help comes from all quarters. I hope the relief and reconstruction work can go well. The Chinese leader also inspected work on the restoration of damaged houses and infrastructure. Heavy rain continues to lash Hong Kong and Guangdong province three days since Typhoon Haiquan made landfall in southern China. Media reports say the storm has injured at least 110 people in Hong Kong, as the city recorded the highest rainfall in 140 years, forcing the closure of schools and several subway stations. In neighboring Guangdong, authorities upgraded the flood control emergency response to the second highest level. The city of Shenzhen also saw record rainfall of 469 millimeters, the highest since 1952. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro will start an official visit to China on Friday. The Chinese Foreign Ministry says the visit comes at invitation of Chinese President Xi Jinping. The Chinese Coast Guard has taken action against four Philippine ships that trespassed. That trespassed near Renai Reef in the South China Sea. It said China's sovereignty over the Nansha Islands, including Renai and adjacent waters, is not in dispute, and China firmly opposes the Philippines' illegal transport of building materials to its illegally grounded warship. The Coast Guard has pledged to continue to carry out rights protection and law enforcement activities in waters under Chinese jurisdiction in accordance with the law. A former White House trade adviser under the Trump administration has been found guilty of contempt of Congress. Peter Navarro has been convicted on two misdemeanor counts of contempt of Congress. Each count carries a potential prison sentence of up to one year. The, rule, the ruling cited his refusal to cooperate with the congressional investigation into the Capitol riot in 2021. Navarro says he will appeal the verdict, arguing he couldn't cooperate due to Trump's executive privilege claims. There are many other issues that are related to this case that are open questions, but at the end of the day, 
at the end of the day, the day that Judge Maida ruled that I could not use executive privilege as a defense in this case, the die was cast. This was pro forma, pro forma. We knew going in what the verdict was going to be. That's why this is going to the appeals court. U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta found Navarro's evidence insufficient to show Trump had invoked executive privilege. Navarro's sentencing is scheduled for January the 12th, adding another chapter to the ongoing legal scrutiny related to the January the 6th Capitol attack. Chinese Premier Li Qiang has called for joint efforts with other countries to resist the practice of overstretching the concept of security and politicizing economic issues. Premier Li met United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres on the sidelines of the leaders' meetings on East Asia cooperation in Jakarta. Li urged the international community to adopt the vision of common and sustainable security and uphold the philosophy of open and inclusive development. Guterres hailed China's important role in advancing the global agenda, saying the UN is ready to work closely with China to reform the international economic governance system and help developing countries obtain sufficient resources to meet challenges. Mali's government says at least 64 people, including dozens of civilians, are dead in separate attacks on Thursday. Media reports say an army base and passenger boat were among the targets. A military group affiliated to al-Qaeda has claimed responsibility. Gabon's military junta has named former Prime Minister Raymond and John Sima as the country's new interim premier and the head of the transitional government. The appointment was announced Thursday on national television. The day before, a special representative of the UN Secretary-General met with the interim president, Bryce Ngema, noting that the UN is ready to support Gabon in its transition to constitutional order. Ngema led a coup on August the 30th that ousted long-term President Ali Bongo on Dimba. Bongo had been under house arrest under, until Wednesday when he was finally allowed to go abroad for medical treatment. The torch relay of the 19th Asian Games has started in Hangzhou, the capital of Zhejiang province. The torch is expected to journey through 11 cities in the province and return to Hangzhou on September the 20th. The 23rd China International Fair for Investment and Trade has kicked off in Xiamen, Fujian province. Brazil, Serbia and Qatar are the guest countries of honor. The event will publish a series of reports providing insights and guidance for trade and investment. In addition, a number of forums and promotions will take place both online and in person. A thousand business groups from nearly 100 countries and regions are attending. Thank you very much for the update. That was Zhu Tianlu. This is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital and coming up in business. China's trade with the emerging markets continues to grow. It's credited as the most successful and vibrant model for cooperation in the Asia-Pacific region. But it also faces enormous challenges ahead if a code of conduct cannot be signed in due time. Join me, to Yun, for a close look at the latest development of China-ASEAN relations on this week's Chat Lounge, wherever you get your podcasts and on CGTN Radio. 38 minutes past the hour. Turning to business in stock markets on the Chinese mainland finished lower on Friday. Timothy Pope has more. The Chinese mainland markets were down, although they did bounce back slightly from their morning lows. Uh, the Shanghai Composite Index uh, shed only about a fifth of 1% by the end of the day. Trading volumes, though, continued to decline. They've been falling pretty steadily throughout the week after Monday's flurry of uh, market activity following the changes to a series of market rules that we saw uh, late last weekend over the weekend. Uh, volume was less than half of what we saw at the beginning of the week. Uh, so uh, we also saw the Shanghai Composite uh, erase the last of the gains that it had made on uh, on Monday and uh, end the week about a third of 1% lower than it started. Chinese chip makers uh, had a bit of a modest lift after the pre-sale launch of Huawei's new smartphone, the Mate 60 Plus. Uh, SMIC's Shanghai listing uh, added about 7 tenths of 1%. There were some other gainers too, but most sectors uh, here were in decline, led by uh, energy and uh, consumer stocks.
That was market analyst Timothy Pulp in Shanghai. Uh, markets were closed in Hong Kong on Friday. In Japan, the Nikkei dipped around 1.2%. The General Administration of Customs says China's trade with emerging markets continued to grow in the first eight months of the year. Uh, since the middle of August, export orders of uh, Metsutake mushrooms grown in uh, Yanbian Korean Autonomous Prefecture in Jilin Province have surged. Uh, Jilin producers send their exports to more than 10 countries along the Belt and Road, including New Zealand and Russia. Uh, Young Dong is director of the Import and Export Food Safety Department at Chungchun Customs in Jilin. He says improvements of the highway uh, rather highway, railway, and aviation logistics networks have helped spur foreign trade. Since the beginning of this year, foreign trade imports and exports by private enterprises in Jilin province have increased significantly. Imports and exports to the Belt and Road countries increased by 27.2%, accounting for more than 40% of Jilin's total import and export volume during the period. A furniture company in Kunshan, Jiangsu province, focuses on customizing design and production to appeal to varied consumer tastes in different markets. Wu Xiaofeng at Kunshan Customs says they've rolled out rules and regulations to accelerate the development of Jiangsu's exports. Aiming at the markets of Belt and Road countries, we have established dynamic tracking, technical regulations and conformity assessment procedures to help enterprises effectively deal with foreign trade barriers. At the same time, we help enterprises strengthen the management of export quality standards to promote the healthy development of the export of wood products. Customs stats show that through August of this year, China's imports and exports to 152 countries along the Belt and Road reached 12.6 trillion yuan, or roughly 1.7 trillion U.S. dollars, and accounting for 46.6 percent of China's total foreign trade volume. Agriculture represents a significant area of trade between China and Southeast Asia. One company in Hainan shows the, the province's free trade policies are helping to facilitate trade in tropical fish. Lin Watt has more from Hainan. Tropical saltwater fish are bred all year round at this facility owned by the Hainan Shenhai Aquatic Company in the city of Dongfang. The grouper eggs, which the team plans to produce in September, are expected to be commercially available at the end of the month. They will be sold in Southeast Asian countries, including Malaysia and Vietnam. Hainan has unique geographical advantages in breeding grouper since it is a kind of tropical marine fish. And the province has achieved significant results in improving breeding speed, disease resistance, and survival rates for the species. In addition to Hainan, some Southeast Asian countries can breed grouper, which has created a good opportunity to export some aquatic products to these countries, and the business is long-term and sustainable. The implementation of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, or RCEP, and Hainan's free trade policy have strengthened cooperation between local enterprises and their ASEAN counterparts. Chenhai has more than 20 marine fish breeding facilities, mainly in the provinces of Hainan, Guangdong, Guangxi, Fujian, as well as Vietnam, Malaysia, and Indonesia. It is hoped that the cost of raw materials can be effectively reduced through cooperation among the Belt and Road countries and the implementation of Hainan's preferential policies. The prospect for cooperation in tropical efficient agriculture between Hainan and ASEAN is broad. As a free trade port, Hainan has a more obvious regional advantage, especially after RCEP came into effect. The cooperation between the two sides doesn't have to be limited to agriculture. It can also extend to technology and industrial products. There is huge market potential. In recent years, Hainan province has signed multiple agricultural technology cooperation projects with ASEAN countries. They are focused on areas including joint research and development and strengthening cooperation in fields such as agricultural product processing and trade. In the first seven months of this year, Hainan's trade value with the ASEAN surpassed 19 billion yuan, an increase of 0.9%, accounting for 14.3% of the total imports and exports in the first seven months of 2023 in Hainan. That was Lin Wall reporting.
The 23rd China International Fair for Investment and Trade is kicked off in Xiamen, Fujian Province. Brazil, Serbia and Qatar are the guest countries of honor. The event will publish a series of reports providing insights and guidance for trade and investment. In addition, a number of forums and promotions will take place both online and in person. A thousand business groups from nearly 100 countries and regions are attending. China's flourishing shipbuilding industry needs 13 million tons of steel this year, a new record. 23 leading domestic shipbuilders have signed purchase agreements with 10 key marine steel manufacturers across China. Vice President Luo Tiajun of the China Iron and Steel Association says the rising demand for advanced ships has improved the supply of high-quality steel used in shipbuilding. The steel industry is adapting to the new requirements for shipbuilding steel plates and for developing new varieties. These contracts also reflect the strengthening breadth and depth of cooperation between the shipbuilding and steel industries in recent years. Data shows China's shipbuilding industries become the global leader in three import categories during the first half of this year. Between January and July, China's shipbuilding output reached 21.1 million deadweight tons, and that's an increase of over 14 percent. People across Hungary are seeking ways to lower living costs as the country's rolled out a mandatory food price reduction since uh, last month aimed to tackle soaring inflation. The Hungarian government raised the mandatory discounts for essential food products to 15% on August the 1st. The mandatory reductions cover pork, rice, sugar, flour and eggs, among other items. Uh, retailers have been offering even better discounts one after another to attract more uh, customers. We are offering discount for at least 20 to 30 percent off to our customers, which is bigger than required, because we think it could make the products more attractive to consumers. In addition, the Hungarian government launched an online price monitoring system, providing the daily prices for 62 food products in 1,200 chain retailers across the nation. And so far, nearly 1 million residents, or 10 percent of the Hungarian population, are using the online database, which helps them choose the best options. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, the women's final at the U.S. Open is all set for this weekend. The U.S. Open Grand Slam tennis tournament has been incredible to watch this year for a few reasons. Join us for this week's episode of Sideline Story, where we'll be taking a closer look at the excitement. We'll examine the top record-breaking performers from China and the return of Novak Djokovic, as well as his emerging rivalry with Carlos Alcaraz. Be sure not to miss our U.S. Open chat this week on your destination for sports news, analysis and discussions, Sideline Story. 47 past the hour now. Turning to sports, here's Brandon Yates. Thank you, Shane. We begin with the Hangzhou Asian Games. Greet Asia in Hangzhou. Embrace the excitement of the Games. In today's Meet Asia in Hangzhou section, we go through the 12th edition of the Asian Games in Japan. Chiju has more. The 1994 Asian Games took place in Hiroshima with the theme of promoting peace and harmony as the city stands as a poignant reminder of the devastating impact of the first atomic bombing in 1945. It was also the first edition of the Games to be held in a non-capital city. Hiroshima 1994 welcomed five Central Asian countries, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and Turkmenistan, which had gained their independence from the Soviet Union. Remarkably, Uzbekistan took the men's football gold medal in its debut. Due to the Gulf War, Iraq was suspended from the Games. The official mascots were a pair of white doves, Popo and Kukul, representing peace and harmony. There were over 6,800 athletes participating from 42 countries. 34 sports were on the program with the debut of baseball, karate and a modern pentathlon. Athletes broke 25 world records across swimming, shooting, weightlifting and other sports, signaling the rise of Asian sports on a global scale. China topped the medal table with 125 gold and 264 medals overall. For the Beijing Hour, I'm Qi Zhi. The torch relay for this year's games officially began today. 
Moving on to tennis, and second-seeded Ariana Sabalenka took down Madison Keys in the U.S. Open Women's Singles Semi-Final. Sabalenka will be taking on Coco Goff in the final this weekend as both players chase their first title in New York. Goff defeated Karolina Muchova 6-4-7-5. She is the youngest American to reach the title match at Flushing Meadows since Serena Williams in 1999. On the men's side, Ben Shelton will play Novak Djokovic in the semi-finals this weekend. Shortly after their match, Carlos Alcaraz and Daniil Medvedev will clash in the other semi. China's Wang Xinyu and Sei Su Wei from the Taiwan region are in women's double semi-final action against Erin Rotliff and Gabriela Dabr- Dabrowski. There are plenty of AFCON and Euro qualifier football matches taking place over the weekend. Some of the selected Euro fixtures include Portugal against Slovakia, Ukraine versus England and the Netherlands up against Ireland. On the African continent, Senegal plays Rwanda, Morocco takes on Liberia and the Ivory Coast faces Lesotho. There is also an exciting international friendly to look forward to as China takes on Malaysia. China has been preparing for this friendly in Chengdu and will also be playing this match at the Chengdu Phoenix Mountain Sports Park. China's Si Yuqi knocked out Denmark's Rasmus Gemke to book his quarterfinal berth at the Badminton China Open. In other selected results, world number one Victor Axelsson is also through and explained the difficulties he faced in his match. It's a little difficult for me to control the shuttlecock in the first game because of wind. I'm very happy to win, and my opponent played very well today. If I'm constantly worrying about my form, it will definitely affect my performance. So I'm just going to relax now and get ready for the quarterfinals. In women's singles, third seed Chen Yufei of China also progressed with straight games victories. In mixed doubles, top-ranked duo Zheng Siwei and Huang Yaoqiang of China have also moved on to the next round. This weekend we'll see the 2023 Rugby World Cup get underway in France. First up, the host nation will take on New Zealand who will be looking to add to their three World Cup titles. Later, two-time winners England will play an Argentina team famous for their running rugby. Finally, captain Sio Khaleesi and his defending champion side South Africa, who also have three World Cup titles, faces Scotland. China won gold for the third day in a row at the International Weightlifting Federation World Championships in Riyadh. Olympic gold medalist Shen Lujin won three golds across the snatch, clean and jerk and overall categories in the men's 67kg division. In the snatch, Shen won with a result of 153kg, 7 kilos higher than anyone else. In the clean and jerk, he lifted 180kgs for gold and won overall gold for a combined 333kg. He is now preparing for the Asian Games. I have attended the event for many times and I had never wrapped up all the three gold medals before. I am really happy to achieve the gold today. I can only rest for one or two days and then go for training as the Hangzhou Asian Games will begin soon. I have never won gold at Asian Games, so I need to continue working hard to keep stable in the next match. It is also the first time Shen has won all three gold medals at a World Championships. And finally, in the main event of UFC 293, Nigerian Israel Adesanya will take on American Sean Strickland this weekend. Adesanya will be putting his middleweight championship belt on the line against Strickland in Australia. Their feud has been brewing since a heated altercation at the UFC 276 news conference in Las Vegas last year. They both exchanged words, insults and threats for several minutes to ignite the rivalry. An exciting clash is expected between two fighters with very different styles. Thank you very much. That was Brandon Yates. Coming up in Culture and Entertainment, the 6th Silk Road International Cultural Expo. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men Days of Future Past. You are listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi everyone, I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to the Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. 53 minutes past the hour now, turning to culture and entertainment. And Dun Huang's hosted the Dialogue of Friendship Associations of Countries with Ancient Civilizations. That's part of the 6th Silk Road International Cultural Expo. It's all about bringing cultures along the ancient Silk Road together. Uh, Rachel, we spoke to the participants, including representatives from Italy and Egypt. 
Representatives of friendship associations that are working with China and international organizations from more than 20 countries participated in the dialogue. Through several keynote speeches, many of these figures have shared information about projects that foster deeper cultural connections and boost people-to-people -people exchanges. We have founded a, um, a, cooperative, a cooperation program between Italy and China where Italy promotes Chinese culture in culinary arts and Chinese traditional cuisine in the first international Chinese cuisine school, the first in the world. Another representative also advocates for the importance of ancient civilization and heritage and carrying forward their cultural heritage through the recovery of stolen cultural artifacts. Because a lot of artifacts were stolen, in fact, or were smuggled illegally, just recognizing that these things pertain to these countries and then to return them, we can discuss it uh, and find solutions. Overall, this dialogue demonstrates that by strengthening mutual exchanges and mutual learning, human civilizations will be able to learn from each other. I think that it's very important that in places like here, we can feel ourselves more open to share and to invest in art, in sharing our culture, art and traditions. I hope really that for next event, more and more countries will join, especially young people, more young people, more university and more museum, and making also young meetings. The 6th Silk Road International Cultural Expo in Dunhuang aims to promote more cultural exchanges and hopes to foster more people-to-people -people ties through activities such as seminars, forums, exhibitions, and cultural performances. That was Rachel Weiss on a, a forum of cultural exchanges on the sidelines of the Silk Road International Cultural Expo. Well, Snow Leopard, a film directed by late Tibetan filmmaker uh, Pima Tusidan, uh, screened this week at the 2023 Venice International Film Festival. The film showcases the deep thinking of Tusidan on people and society, uh, culture and beliefs. The film took three years to complete. At the premiere of Snow Leopard, Jigma Trinley, the son of Tusidan and an up-and-coming director in his own right, noted that his father's works look at Tibetan culture, life and the changing world. A hashtag about the film screening at the Venice Film Festival has gained over six and a half million views on Weibo so far. The dual Olympic City Art Festival is underway in Beijing. The opening ceremony unveiled a wide range of cultural activities. The aim of the event this year is to explore new ways to inherit and develop the rich Olympic legacy in the capital and Zhengjiakou in Hebei province. The festival is committed to showcasing the Olympic legacy left to Beijing after hosting two successful Olympic Games. Uh, they'll be achieved by means of art and culture exhibitions and leveraging resources to promote cultural and tourism development in Beijing and in Zhengjiakou. The China Art International Fair is underway at the Pan Jiayuan Antique Market in Beijing. Uh, featuring exhibitions, auctions, and seminars, the fair is set to last until the end of this month. Uh, the opening is showcasing more than 400 high-value cultural relics and art pieces from renowned domestic cultural exchange institutions and top collectors. The fair has also brought, over, uh, brought together over 100 cultural exchange institutions from 10 countries. Around 10,000 Chinese and Western cultural relics and art pieces are on display at the event. And that's culture and entertainment. Uh, turning now to the weather before we go for the weekend, and uh, Beijing has thunder showers and 23 degrees overnight. Tomorrow's getting moderate rainfall and 26 degrees. Chongqing's 28 this evening, then sunny and 37. Lhasa has showers and 10 overnight, then a light rain will continue through the day tomorrow with a high of 21. Uh, Shenzhen has downpours uh, continuing through the day tomorrow with a high of 29 degrees Celsius. Hong Kong has heavy rainfall and 26 degrees this evening. Moderate rainfall tomorrow with a high of 29. Uh, elsewhere, Tokyo is 23 overnight, partly cloudy, and 32 on Saturday. Islamabad is 24 this evening, then sunny and 42. Bangkok's down to 28 degrees, then thunderstorms and 37. In Africa, Nairobi's getting showers and 23 degrees. And finally to Oceania, Sydney's 9 this evening. Tomorrow is sunny and 19 degrees Celsius.
That's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, the Chinese president's touring parts of northeast China uh, recently ravaged by heavy rains and flooding. And the Chinese premier is on an official visit to Indonesia following his participation in the 18th ASEAN Summit in Jakarta. On behalf of the staff, Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get an hour wavelength every week to find out what's real with China Africa Talk. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We'll see you there. A million, a billion, or maybe a gazillion years ago, a giant split open an egg. Then came the lady giant who made people, and Mr. Curious, the botanist, Mr. Handyman, the baron on the tree. This is our new season of Chinese folk tales, and we will explore the ancient mystical world together. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.